0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everything's getting more expensive these days. Gas, rent, and even your music. While other music services keep jacking up their prices, Live One is letting you lock in the best music membership at the best price. Live One Plus is just 3 dollars per month. Get all your favorite music ad-free, along with unlimited skips and maximum audio quality. Beat inflation with the best deal in music at just 3 dollars per month. Visit liveone.com slash best music to get Live One Plus now. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie.
1: Before we begin, I want to remind you that I have another show called Somewhere Sinister. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. More information is in the information below. Thanks. Tony Harris walked into the office of private investigator Virgil Vandegrift. Virgil was investigating the disappearance of multiple gay men from the Indianapolis area. Tony said that he believed he had encountered the person responsible for the missing gay men the previous night. He explained that he had been at a gay bar in the city when he met a man named Brian Smart. Brian was staring at a poster of one of the missing men, and his interest in the poster seemed suspicious, so Tony decided to find out more about this mystery man. Brian claimed to be a landscaper from Ohio who was in town doing a big job for a friend. He asked Tony if he wanted to come back to the house where he was staying and go for a swim in the pool. Tony agreed and they drove away in a blue Buick with Ohio plates. They soon arrived at a large Tudor house. There, Tony swam in the pool for a while, but then Brian asked if Tony wanted to try autoerotic asphyxiation, which is the act of cutting off air supply during climax. Tony choked Brian first as he masturbated and then, when it was Tony's turn to be choked, Brian wouldn't let go. Tony pretended to pass out and as soon as Brian released his grip, he opened his eyes. Brian acted worried that he had passed out and told Tony that it was an accident. Tony made it clear that he wasn't happy and Brian suggested they sleep it off. As soon as Brian began snoring, Tony started looking around the house for any sign of the man's real identity, but he had no luck. The house was crammed with box after box of random junk. When Tony got back to the pool room, he picked up Brian's pants, but before he could pull out his wallet, the mystery man woke up and accused him of trying to rob him. Tony played it off, tossing the pants to Brian, claiming he had to get going because he needed to work in the morning. Brian suggested that they get together again, and Tony agreed. Virgil suggested that Tony meet Brian again, and he would wait outside and tail them after they left. Tony agreed and he went back to the bar the next week, but Brian never showed up. The mysterious predator would remain on the loose in Indianapolis. This is Monsters. Herb Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947, in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the first child of Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister who would go on to have three more children together. Herbert was a successful anesthesiologist and after the last child was born, they moved into a bigger house in a more affluent area of Indianapolis. Herb loved taking care of his siblings and his mother showed him much love for it. It's said that his home life was pretty normal for an upper-middle-class family in the area. In school, Herbert was a good student. He was fairly popular and had a solid group of friends. He was known to be a pretty big practical joker and was known to be able to make anybody laugh. Once puberty hit, though, he began to become darker with his jokes. He started only focusing on his own amusement at the expense of others. He never really took an interest in girls and his parents just assumed that he was a late bloomer. Herb focused more on death and disturbing ideas. He once wondered out loud what urine tasted like and began chasing his friends around, begging for a drink. Boys of this age regularly cling to the more disgusting aspects of life in general, and eventually his friends just made a game out of Herb's disturbing outbursts. The boys-will-be-boys attitude only encouraged Herb to escalate his behavior. When Herb found a dead crow on the side of the road, he couldn't help but study it. He smelt the decay and reached out to touch the corpse. When he pushed down on the crow's belly, he could feel maggots moving around underneath the skin. When he pushed his fingers harder, they broke into the flesh and he could feel the bird's rotting insides. This aroused Herb like he'd never been aroused before. Suddenly, a neighborhood boy called out Herb's name and pulled him from his delight. The boy came over and asked what he was doing. Herb just picked up the bird's corpse and put it in his pocket. Soon, the dead crow ended up on his teacher's desk as a prank. Despite everyone in the classroom knowing who did it, they didn't tell. When the teacher arrived in class one day and found that one of the students had urinated on her desk, it wasn't long before Herb became the prime suspect. He was still considered the class clown, but his jokes had become more disturbing. They crossed a line that became more than boys will be boys. Still, Herb seemed to continue getting away with his practical jokes. As a teenager, Herb's friends were starting to distance themselves from him. They were starting to recognize that his behavior was becoming inappropriate. His father was spending time away from the home more, and though his mother remained the most stable person in his life, she too was often disturbed by his behavior. Soon, Herb learned to fake an acceptable personality while keeping his true feelings hidden. His senior year of high school was a lonelier year than others. He began keeping to himself more to have time to indulge in his death obsession privately. He set his sights on graduating and starting a new life. After graduating high school, Herb enrolled in Indiana University in Bloomington, about 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Indianapolis, where the high school students put up with his dark sense of humor and odd behavior. People in college wanted nothing to do with him. His classmates ignored him and treated him like an outcast. Before the semester was even over, Herb dropped out and moved back home. Herbert was not happy about his son's decision and tried to get him to reconsider, but Herb wouldn't budge. Instead, his father found him an entry-level job at the Indianapolis Star, working in the copy department. Most of Herbert's disappointment lied in the shame that Herb was bringing to the family and less about his son. He hoped that Herb could find a place for himself in the workforce and finally settle down. Herb didn't quite fit in with the journalists at the paper, but he seemed to do quite well in the advertising department, and soon he was working for an executive named Gary Donna. It worked out well because Gary had a darker sense of humor and he could handle Herb's jokes, but the rest of the office still had a difficult time dealing with him. There were frequent complaints and Gary had to constantly tell people that that was just Herb. He was just a little odd. Herb was looking for acceptance from his coworkers, but he wasn't getting it. They just didn't feel comfortable around him. Herb decided that he wouldn't be able to be successful there, so he quit. Herbert was once again embarrassed by his son's behavior and was able to convince Herb to go back to university and take a single class. Herb agreed and took a human anatomy class, which he figured would be right up his alley. Instead of focusing on attracting the attention of his classmates, Herb focused on his schoolwork and actually did well in the class. Herb had known that he was gay for a while, but he was more interested in being accepted socially so like his obsession with death, he kept it hidden from the world. Many nights he would take public transportation into Indianapolis and spend the evening at gay clubs. He would keep to himself and just take in the scene. He eventually became friendly with some other regulars but never took action. His father began questioning what he was doing with all of his extra time. I mean, he was only taking one class. In order to get his father off his back, he joined the Young Republicans Club. Despite his private interests, Herb believed strongly in conservative politics, as did his family. This extracurricular activity gave Herb the ability to socialize with other like-minded students, and it put him in his father's good graces. It was at the Young Republicans Club that Herb met a young woman named Juliana Sater, who went by Julie. Julie was a high school English teacher who was taking some classes at the university. They seemed to hit it off with a shared interest in cars and politics and soon began dating. Herb believed that this could be his chance to start over on the path to a so-called normal life. He stopped frequenting the gay scene and focused his energy on building a life with Julie. That new life did not include college, though. Despite his father's constant pushing, Herb didn't see a future in anything that required a college degree. He wanted to go out into the world and start making a name for himself. Herbert continued to help him find a job, but his personality was just not suited to most of the people he interviewed with. Herb and Julie married in November of 1971, and they eventually bought a house in Indianapolis. Herb had begun working as a clerk for the Department of Motor Vehicles. Of course, after the wedding, Herb no longer had a reason to withhold sex from Julie. Prior to marriage, he was able to use his Christian upbringing as a reason for waiting. Once they were married, though, Herb still couldn't bring himself to have sex with his wife. She would later say that he would change his clothes in the bathroom and was never naked around her. She became more aggressive in her sexual advances, but it only made Herb withdraw further. Six months into their marriage, Julie talked to Herb's father about his behavior, and Herbert had him committed to a psychiatric facility for depression. The doctors at the facility began to believe that Herb suffered from schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder, both conditions that were largely misunderstood at the time. They believed he was experiencing two personalities, one that was the healthy man and the other that was experiencing hallucinations. Herb was actually compartmentalizing his dark fantasies and his sexual orientation, two things that he refused to talk about with the doctors, so they remained somewhat uninformed about Herb's full psychology. This diagnosis gave Herb the feeling that he wasn't responsible for his desires to have sex with men. It was a different person. Herb returned to his life, and now he wasn't repressing the fantasies that helped him get aroused. Once back at home, he was able to begin a sexual relationship with his wife. Years later, Julie would admit that they only had sex six times over their 25 years of marriage, but that was enough to give them three children. They had two daughters and a son between 1979 and 1984. During this time, Herb became an unpopular co-worker at the DMV, but his perfectionism and critical interactions with his peers led his supervisors to see him as management material. He was soon working his way up the ladder at the government agency. After his brief stay in the psychiatric facility, Herb did return to visiting gay bars over the years. He started out just hitting on men and then escalated to having sexual interactions with them. The sex was never satisfying for Herb, though. It wasn't disgusting like sex with Julie was, but it wasn't what he wanted. He wanted his partner to be cold and motionless, like the corpses he so often fantasized about. But they always wanted to talk and moan and focus on themselves. They always ruined the fantasy for Herb, and he left feeling unfulfilled. It took about ten years, but Herb finally got promoted at the DMV. He was completely prepared to deal with his subordinates, but dealing with his peers and management was not so easy. The other managers found him to be hard to get along with, but his results were so good that they dealt with it. His perfectionism made the staff work that much harder to make sure their work was flawless, and the department was the most efficient it had been in years. He may have been a bit odd, but his work was impeccable. Despite his co-workers' ability to look past Herb's behavior, Herb had a problem with authority that he couldn't contain. He began urinating on his boss's desk, like he had to the teacher's desk when he was only a child. As a child, he was punished immediately, but at the DMV, his boss didn't want to take action against Herb without concrete proof. He thought Herb was the kind of guy who would file a lawsuit for wrongful termination and it would turn into a big hassle. So Herb's boss just let it slide. He came in every day to a piss-covered desk and accepted it. One day, though, there was a letter to the governor sitting on the boss's desk, and when Herb urinated on it, that was apparently when things went too far. I guess if Herb had moved the letter before he pissed on his boss's desk, it would have been okay, but he didn't, so he was finally fired. He was told that he could either quietly leave or they would make his behavior public knowledge something that would have created a huge amount of shame and embarrassment on his family. Herb quietly left. Herb took a job as a traveling salesman where he drove back and forth across I-70 visiting clients in Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. He started picking up hitchhikers, just for company, but soon he was demanding they pay him for the ride with sex. Gradually, Herb began to choke these young men as he had sex with them in the back seat of his car. He would fantasize about continuing to squeeze until the life drained out of their body, but he was never able to bring himself to do it. He would always let go and they would gasp for breath, ruining his fantasy. It's believed that one of his earliest victims was 17-year-old Eric Rodeger. Herb picked him up at a gas station and immediately pushed his head into his lap after they started driving. Soon, Herb pulled over and told Eric to get in the back. There, he began having sex with him, which led to his usual choking routine, but this time, Herb didn't let go. He kept squeezing, and even though Eric tried to fight back, he quickly lost consciousness and died. Herb spent hours with the corpse before pulling the body out of the car and dumping it on the side of the highway. We'll be right back. Do you know why free trials renew without your consent? It's a business scam out to get you. Don't let greedy corporations pocket your money. Download Truebill to take control of your subscriptions. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions, so you don't have to. Take control of your subscriptions with the new, free Truebill app. Truebill helps you discover hidden, unwanted subscriptions and cancels them with just one click. Truebill empowers you to save more, spend less, see everything, and take back control of your financial life. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com forward slash thisismonsters. Go right now. Truebill.com forward slash thisismonsters. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com forward slash monsters. Herb's father got him a job working at a thrift store. Like all of Herb's previous jobs, he became frustrated when management refused to implement minor changes that would make the store more money. He saw the potential to make a lot of money with a thrift store, but the owners weren't willing to put in the effort. After years of frustration over his boss's unwillingness to accept his suggestions, Herb would have normally begun rebelling in some way, usually involving urine, but Herb was distracted by the death of his father. Herbert's death didn't cause Herb as much depression as it served to push him towards success. After the funeral, Herb talked to Julie about opening their own chain of thrift stores. He had learned the basics from his job and knew that it was a business model that was easily profitable. He knew he could run a store that would make even more profit by being business-savvy and efficient. He borrowed $4,000 from his mother and used it to secure a commercial space. He and Julie traveled to auctions and bought lots of merchandise to sell at their store. They opened their first Save-A-Lot location in 1988. They were backed by the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis, a charity that supported local families. They gave a percentage of their profits to the charity in exchange for credibility and promotional support. They did well enough in their first year that they were able to open a second location and hired managers to handle day-to-day operations. This success allowed them to buy a large Tudor home on 18 acres of land called Fox Hollow Farms. All of this helped keep Julie distracted while Herb continued living out a fantasy life behind her back. He would take seemingly unnecessary business trips and late-night drives, but she was focused on their business, their huge home, and their kids, so it never seemed to be suspicious. Herb began to pack their house full of merchandise for the stores. He would go to auctions and keep buying products even though the stores were full. With little space at the businesses, he began stacking the goods in their home, along the walls and bedrooms and halls, around the indoor pool it became a nuisance that Julie was growing concerned about. He was looking for the best spot to open a third location despite the need to improve their current two stores. Julie said that Herb was always so focused on the next step that he began to neglect the here and now. The chaos at their house made her love to get away for the summer at the condo they owned on Lake Wawasee. While Julie, the children, and Herb's mother spent the summer at the lake, Herb always insisted that he had to stay in Indianapolis and work. Of course, that wasn't true at all. Herb wanted to have the place to himself so he could live another life. By now, Herb had built up a pretty decent cocaine habit, which helped boost his confidence. He had been killing hitchhikers and dumping their bodies on the highways for years now, but he wanted to kill in the comfort of his own home. With his family away for the summer, he was able to start living out this fantasy. At the Indianapolis Gay Bars, he started introducing himself as Brian Smart, A little sign of his ego calling himself smart, but it would eventually be revealed that he was anything but. Herb met a man named Jeff Jones. He was 31 years old and just getting by in life. Not the first person that most other men noticed, so he was flattered when Herb came over and offered to buy him a drink. When the bar started to close, Herb asked Jeff to come home with him and he accepted. At his house, Herb killed Jeff and used his body for sexual gratification. Herb had finally carried out his ultimate fantasy. He had a body that he was able to do whatever he wanted with. In the back of his car, on the highway, he only had so much time, but that night, he could do whatever he wanted for as long as he wanted. It was perfect. The next morning, Herb put Jeff's body on a stack of branches and other dry debris he had collected the day before and lit it on fire. When the fire was out, Herb would bury the remains near the woods on his 18-acre farm. He thought that this kill would satisfy him enough to hold him over for months, but Herb was back out at the gay bars the following night. Herb, posing as Brian Smart, met 20-year-old Richard Hamilton at a different gay bar and brought him home where he murdered him and had sex with his body. Then he burned his remains and buried them on the farm. He tried to pick up another victim before Julie and the kids returned, but he wasn't successful. He had to survive on his fantasies alone through a long nine months. Back at home, Herb remained distant from his wife and she began to notice that he was overly focused on the news of missing and murdered gay men in the area. The year came and went and in 1994, Julie and the kids went back to the condo for the summer. Herb had spent the last nine months fantasizing about the best ways to pick up victims and exactly what he'd do with them when he got them back to his house. Herb picked up more men, but made sure to never pick them up from the same bar. In June, 28-year-old Alan Broussard had just parked his car and was about to meet his boyfriend inside a gay bar in Indianapolis called Brothers. In the parking lot, a man named Brian lured Alan to his car with the promise of some cocaine. Alan disappeared. In July, 32-year-old Roger Goodlett told his parents that he was going to a gay bar in the city, but nobody ever saw him arrive. Almost everyone who got into Herb's car would never be seen again. All but one. One person survived his encounter with Herb, and, most likely because he was bigger than Herb, he was returned to the bar where he met the man who called himself Brian. Though it's true that many young gay men don't get reported missing and may not have many people looking for them. That wasn't the case for either Alan or Roger. Not long after Alan's disappearance, his mother called a private investigator named Virgil Vandegrift, who specialized in missing persons. She explained that her son was going to meet his boyfriend at Brothers, but never arrived. Then, a few weeks later, Virgil got a call from Roger's mother saying something similar about her son. Two men, similar ages, both gay. It couldn't be a coincidence. Virgil posted missing persons posters in gay bars and talked to the regulars. He learned that someone had seen Roger getting into a blue car with Ohio license plates. After learning that there had been several gay men go missing from Indianapolis in the past few years, Virgil took his information to the police, but they weren't interested. It wasn't long before Tony, who was friends with Roger, would come in and report the strange encounter he had with Brian Smart. Virgil took this information to a missing persons detective, Mary Wilson, and she agreed to help. They drove Tony around some of the nicer areas in town that had houses like he described, but they never found the right house. For now, Herb would remain free to terrorize the Indianapolis gay scene. It wasn't long before Julie and the kids were back from summer vacation and Herb had to rein in his murderous fantasies. He had to go back to pretending to be a normal member of society. In the beginning of 1995, their son came racing into the house excited to show his mother what he had found. It was a human skull. Julie was horrified. Where did you get that, she asked. The boy told her that he found it out by the woods and there were more bones there. She asked him to show her and by the time Herb got home from work, she had a collection of human bones sitting on the kitchen table. What is this, she asked him. Herb laid out a story about how skeletons are actually pretty common, and that one had belonged to his father from when he briefly taught some classes at the medical school. After he died, Herb said he took a bunch of stuff from his parents' house and it had been sitting in their garage for a while. Then he got scared that the kids might see it, so he buried it in the yard. Then he turned everything around and got mad at her for bringing the bones inside. What if the kids saw? What would we tell them? They'll have nightmares. What were you thinking, Julie? By the time Herb was done, it was Julie who was explaining her actions and apologizing. Herb had turned to drinking to help suppress his urges and that was affecting the thrift stores. He knew that Julie was at her wit's end over all the stuff he had piled into their house, so he had it all transferred to the stores, but with little room there, the store became a mess. Employees were quitting and new employees weren't getting trained. The income was dropping quickly. Herb would storm into the stores, yell at the employees, and then storm out again. Soon, the Children's Bureau of Indianapolis withdrew their support for the store. By the summer of 1995, Herb had nearly perfected his system. He picked up men from different gay bars and brought them back to his home where he used a length of hose to strangle them to death. Then he would have his way with them for the entire evening. The next morning, he would burn the bodies and scatter the ashes around the property. He made sure there were no more skulls. By the end of the summer, Herb was scrambling for one more kill, and when he strolled into a gay bar, he was recognized by Tony, who called out his name. Herb didn't stick around. He ran to the door and drove away, but Tony was able to run out and get his license plate number. By the middle of the following day, Detective Wilson had run the plates and found that they were registered to Herb Baumeister. She went by the house and the description matched the description given by Tony. They didn't have enough evidence to arrest him, so Wilson went down to the save-a-lot and questioned him. Inside the store, she asked if he owned a blue Buick and he said yes. Then she asked him what he knew about the attempted murder of Tony Harris. Herb played dumb, so Wilson told him, You took Tony Harris to your home at Fox Hollow Farm and attempted to strangle him to death. Herb denied the accusation. Then she started listing off missing gay men from the area. Herb continued to deny any knowledge of the men. Wilson asked him if they could take a look around his property, but Herb said no. As soon as the detective was out of the store, Herb walked to his office and called Julie. He told her that the police thought he may have purchased some stolen goods and they wanted to search the house. He told her if they came by the house asking to look around, tell them no. Julie didn't see what the problem was, but he snapped at her to shut up and listen. He demanded that she tell the police no, and she relented. Then he slammed the phone. It wasn't long before Detective Wilson was at the front door and Julie was telling her she wasn't allowed to search the house. Then she told the detectives, there's nothing stolen here. Wilson repeated, stolen? Then she told Julie that she was there about a string of murders that they believed Herb had committed. Julie was horrified. She remembered the skeleton, but she stayed loyal to her husband. Wilson gave her a card and told her to call if she thought of anything. When Herb returned home, his paranoia went through the roof. He refused to leave the house and he was constantly looking out the windows to see if anyone was watching them. Julie couldn't handle it. She suggested that Herb go stay at his mother's house to get away and he agreed. He didn't really want to go to his mother's house, but he saw this as an opportunity to flee. The same day he left, Julie filed for divorce. Then she called Detective Wilson, where she told her about the skeleton that had been found and gave her permission to search the property. Investigators began finding human remains almost immediately. It was three days of searching before they believed they'd found all the bones they could. They believed the bones belonged to 11 different men, but only 8 would ever be identified. Inside the pool room, they also found a hidden video camera, and it's believed that Herb videotaped his kills, but no videotapes were ever found in the house. Herb stayed in hiding for days. He drove to Canada, and the last time he was seen alive was when a Canadian trooper saw him sleeping in his car, parked by a bridge, and told him to move along. The trooper would later say that there was a box of videotapes on the passenger seat when he talked to him. It's believed that Herb stopped somewhere and tossed the tapes into a body of water. Then he drove into Pinery Park in Ontario and wrote a three-page note where he blamed his failed marriage and his failed business for his death. At no point in the note did he admit to the murders or to his sexual orientation. Then he put his gun to his forehead and pulled the trigger. He was 49 years old. They didn't need a confession. Herb had left quite a bit of evidence behind, and Julie did everything she could to help the investigation. Herb had fastidiously kept and organized his receipts, so investigators were able to match his locations on the road years earlier with the discovery of murdered men along the highways. It's unknown how many people Herb actually killed. He's suspected of killing up to 23 people. But his time on the road, traveling across three states on I-70, gave him the opportunity to kill a lot of people and not have them connected to him. There's a question of whether or not someone can be born evil, and if there's ever an argument for that to be true, Herb Baumeister would be it. He was obsessed with death from a young age, and there's no known trauma that would explain it. He may very well have been a natural-born monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operates the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Jillian with Court Junkie. Court Junkie is a true crime podcast that covers court cases and criminal trials using audio clips and interviews with people close to the cases. Court Junkie is available on Apple Podcasts and PodcastOne.com. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just 3 dollars per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details.
1: Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's You Know What... So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus
0: Oil are now Serta. Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future.
1: For home heating you can depend on. See sertaireland.ie